Welcome to the... Okay, we're a little early. <laughs> okay. 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 Hello. Hello. Is this Lippy? Are you hearing me? Yes, I am. Welcome to the show. Uh, we have a few Thank- seconds before we actually go live. All right. Now, We're do you want me seconds. online or do you want me on the phone? Um, what you're doing right now is fine because I'm not the most tech perfect person, so we can just have you on the phone like this. Okay, and I just put my earbuds in, so my sound must be a little bit better at this point. Okay, and that's fine. Kind of bear with me. I'm just I'm just kind of an idiot when it comes to tech. We've got 15 seconds, 14, and then I'm going to do your intro, okay? That's fine. And we've got, what, half an hour? You have a half hour. The show's an hour, and we're going to go in three, two, one, okay? Okay. All righty. Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report. This week, we have Libby Halivi, who's going to speak on the nuclear anniversary of the time when our country dropped bombs, unfortunately, atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, Libby Halivi is a national treasure. She produces and hosts a, a, a show called Nuclear Hot Seat. It's a weekly international news magazine on all things anti-nuclear. She's been a TED, TED Talk speaker. She's an Amazon best-selling author. She talks rallies, led media workshops, um, anti-nuclear conferences around the country. She's also the co-creator of Radiation Awareness Protection Talk, or RAFT. Uh, and she's, it's an audio series on how to best protect from the negative impact of radioactivity on our health. And that's from her, her nuclear hot seat program. So it's, nuclear hot seat's been in weekly production since 2011. And every month the program is downloaded in like 112 countries on six continents. We've received as many as half a million hits in a week. And it provides nuclear news for serious reporting. And she gives some comic relief, too. She has a basically, I'm, if I'm reading correctly, a Numb Nuts of the Week award for nuclear boneheadedness. Um, she's insightful. She's been through it all. Um, and we are just so happy to have her here. Libby is particularly uh, qualified to speak about this having, as having lived through um, the Three Mile Island situation. She has a book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile, Isle, Three Mile Island to Fukushima, Fukushima and Beyond. Um, apparently, she was, according to this, she said she was visiting friends a mile from the nuclear reactors in Middleton, Pennsylvania. Uh, she's worked for 20th Century Fox Studios, Norman Lear's production companies, local radio stations. She's an accomplished playwright and librettist. Uh, and now, you know, her dream is to take Nuclear Hot Seat International via satellite, cable, or broadcast. And I just am so happy to welcome Libby to the show. So welcome, Libby. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor on this of all days. Yeah. Could you please, you know, I, I think people have heard a lot of talk about the excuses, you know, for dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In fact, you could say there's been a mythology of lies taught for generations regarding the alleged need to drop the A-bomb on those two cities. And the bromide was that this was necessary to force a total Japanese surrender or more American troops would dine in endless work. Could you explain, to you know, quickly to our, our audience what the truth really was? First of all, and I have spoken extensively with people in Japan who have researched this from the Hiroshima Peace Institute and the like, and 
Japan was actually already exploring ways to surrender through some backdoor diplomatic channels because they recognized that with Russia announcing that they were now going to be joining the fight against Japan, having defeated the Germans, that they had no chance whatsoever because the Russians were fierce. There were a lot of them and they were coming to get them. And the United States at the same time, um, had spent $2 billion in a completely secret program, the Manhattan Project, to develop this super weapon, which was supposed to be able to end the war against Germany. There was a fear that Germany was going to be developing the bomb. So we developed the bomb to be able to go against Germany. Well, when Germany surrendered, many of the scientists said, okay, we don't need this against Germany, and they left the program. But still, the United States had put $2 billion into this, into two different types of bombs, types of A-bombs. And they had Mm -hmm. to have something to show for it, or they were going to have a big hole in the budget. So it was a combination of things, and there was a lot of pressure to drop it. It, when it was dropped on Hiroshima, that was one type of bomb. That was a uranium bomb, did mm-hmm. the damage that it did. And uh, the second bomb was a plutonium bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. The reason that the second bomb was dropped in part was because, first of all, we've got it, we might as well use it. And they wanted to see what the difference was between the two technologies, which one would be better for them mm-hmm. to use. Now, it's interesting that just a few days ago we had that horrible explosion in Beirut. This was a, uh, right. an ammonia compound, and, and many people, including the mayor of Beirut, went on record saying this must be what Hiroshima was like. Well, mm-hmm. no, because um, there's a, a, a function online. By the way, I want people, if they're interested in doing something to stop nuclear weapons, I've got a number of URLs at the end that I will give you where you can find more information and find ways you can get involved. But one of them is this site right. called Nuke, Nuke Map, N-U-K-E-M-A-P. And I, it's where you can put in a location the size of a bomb and uh, detonate it and you can see in concentric circles exactly what the damage would be. You can do this in your own neighborhood. Well, I did it mm-hmm. for Beirut. And in Beirut, I know that they've got hundreds of people, last time that I saw the count online, who have been killed by this and the horrors of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if a Hiroshima-sized bomb had been dropped on Beirut in that exact same location, there would have been mm-hmm. just under 134,000 people immediately killed. And over 318,000, 318, no, yes, I am saying that correctly, thousand people who would have extensive injuries, many of whom would die over the next month. Plus, there would be the legacy of the bomb, which is the signature of this weapon. It is the defining element of this weapon, and that is the radiation, the radioactivity that it releases, Mm -hmm. because it's not just the initial impact and firebomb that kills, it is the radioactivity afterwards that kills for literally, in the case of plutonium, half a million Mm -hmm. years. And with the release of the radiation, that's why the cancer rates, the people were dropping dead a month afterwards. Mm -hmm. None of this will be the case in Beirut. Horrible. It's a horrible tragedy that has taken place there. Mm -hmm. The world is rushing with humanitarian aid. But please... Don't say it was like Hiroshima because on orders of magnitude, it was not. And I think that what that speaks to is the fact that people don't grasp anymore, unless we lived through the Cold War, we don't grasp exactly how awful a nuclear bomb is and how it is mm-hmm. impossible to recover from it because the damage it creates not only initially but through the radiation release lasts literally right. forever. Right. No, I understand that here. I, I'm in St. Louis actually. Here in St. Louis, in St. Louis County, we have a darling little site called West Lake, West Lake Landfill, and mm-hmm. it, it is that along with the others. It's a repository for some of the oldest nuclear spent nuclear fuel rods in existence from the Manhattan Project, and suburbs right. were built in that part of the county. They were never told this was buried you know, loosely in a landfill. Um, I covered it, actually. And, um, you know, we even had a, a film made out about it with, the, with the, basically the, um, the mom's group. And we're still, mm-hmm. you know, waiting. I mean, kids were playing in a baseball field not knowing that 
there were particulates that got into the dirt that they were playing and the cancer rates were soaring. Um, and, and you're right, this is, when you're talking about nuclear anything, you know, the effects mm-hmm. are long, long last, almost really too dangerous to play with. Um, I want to get back to the 75th anniversary. Um, in my opinion, it's a, dropping the bomb like that is a crime against humanity. And, yes. you know, if we were to take it and turn it into a teachable moment, because here's the thing, people don't realize our military is actually using nuclear weapons. They may, not, they may be bunker busters. They may not be on the size of what was dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but between bunker busting bombs and then uh, armaments that are, that are infused with depleted uranium, we've been using it, actually. Um, if we were to turn this into a teachable moment to reduce the chance of that happening again, if you, you, know, if you could create a new future, what, what would you suggest we do? There are a number of things that we can do, and people need to realize that there is no separation between bombs, nuclear reactors as a power source, or any of the mining and manufacturing that happens. It all releases radioactivity. It's all part of the same death machine, really, and it's deadly to all forms of life on the planet. As for what people can do, first of all, I don't know if they're aware of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. It's known as ICANN, and the website is icanw.org. They're the group that got behind and was able to facilitate at the United Nations the passage of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. That was passed in 2017, and the group won the Nobel Peace Prize as a result of that in 2017. After it gets passed by the United Nations, it does not go into law. And this is equivalent to what we did with landmines, with chemical weapons, which now are not mm-hmm. used. And this would put nuclear weapons illegal anywhere on the planet. It takes 50 nations to ratify the, the treaty. And some can do it quickly, some take longer. Well, as of last week, we had the 40th which means there were only 10 more needed. I'm almost going to cry at this. This morning the announcement was made. Three more nations mm. signed, and it's as of today, to honor okay. the Hibaksha, the people who were the Japanese people who were right. so injured and survived. So sure. what they can do is they can go to ICAN, ICANW.org. Lots of information there as to how you can bring this information to the awareness of, of your local community and get them to sign on to the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. There's also an allied program called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And the website is easy. Without the apostrophe, it's don'tbankonthebomb.com. And what that is is a program to divest all investment monies from those companies that make any components of the nuclear weapons cycle. And uh, this started about three years ago in the Netherlands. It has been extraordinarily successful. It goes, there are pension funds, there are banks, there are financial institutions. Mm-hmm. But anyone who's got $5 in a bank account, you can, they have materials there for you to be able to go to the head of your bank and say, is my money being invested in any of these, and I believe it's 28 companies, that are known to be, you know, I mean, uh, the, the, the usual suspects that you, that you would think of, you know, the big right. military industrial complex companies. Are any of them mm-hmm. invested in what the bank invests in? And if they mm-hmm. answer yes to any of it, just say, I do not want my money there. If, you know, I want you to go through the process, I will be checking back with you. If you do not remove your money from these investments, I will withdraw my money, which really won't be that significant to you. But everyone I know, I will tell. My financial advisor, I will tell. If you're a member of a union, your pension fund, you tell them. And any one single person can bring this up and raise it at their financial Mm -hmm. institution. We make enough noise. There's already been divestment. Some of the major um, uh, pension funds in Europe, in the Netherlands, in Scandinavia, Mm -hmm. have already pulled. And we do enough of this, it's going to hurt them in the one place they pay attention to, which is the pocketbook. And the third one 
is a campaign called Back from the Brink. And that, again, is an easy website. It's backfromthebrink.org. And that is a campaign for people to be able to educate themselves to go out and speak to these issues in an intelligent way. Because I don't know anybody who's walking around and saying, oh, gee, nuclear bombs are a really good idea, unless they haven't a clue as to what, uh, as to what this really means. You know, we'll, we'll remove all right. names from this one. Um, but if people understand that as bad as Beirut was, orders of magnitude greater is what Hiroshima would do. And Hiroshima, right. compared to the weapons we have today, was a pipsqueak bomb. It was mm. tiny. We have Trident submarines where each of their missiles has eight weapons on it, and each of those weapons is five times greater than Hiroshima. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, we can destroy ourselves. Yes, we can. Um, I was looking at, you know, your biography, and it said, you know, you were nearby when the incident at Three Mile Island occurred. Um, tell us about it, you know, how this, I'm assuming this is what got you involved, so I'm, I'm curious. Tell us about it. Well, it got me involved, but there was a time delay. Um, okay. This happened in uh, back in 1979, and um, I was one mile away from the nuclear reactors, not knowing anything about them, visiting friends, when they had a serious malfunction uh, that was compounded by human error, which happens so often with nuclear reactors. And mm -hmm. there were radiation releases. Um, we were not informed about it. I was literally a mile away. I could see it from the backyard of the people I was staying with. And um, exposed to radiation, we didn't know how much. We didn't know the impact. And it was terrifying because they lied to us for the first two days. And I didn't believe anything about, you know, ah, I, I was a cynic about it. And then on the third day, I was alone in this house. My friends were at work. I had no transportation. I was sitting there on a writing project, interestingly, a musical called Armageddon. And um, all of a sudden, a siren goes down the middle of the street with a loudspeaker that says, stay indoors, close your doors and windows, and don't go outside unless you absolutely have to. And as I said, I was alone. I had no transportation. The phone stopped working because they were all overloaded. The house had no basement in which to hide from radiation. We didn't know if the thing was going to explode. It was terrifying because at any second, as far as I knew, I would be not only incinerated but vaporized, not any trace of my physical body on Earth. And I, this is what I write about in my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, um, and because – from there, it was really a very deep and a very painful emotional experience that lasted for years because I had post-traumatic, when I finally left, again, I was just visiting so I could leave, but I, I was so traumatized and had so much post-traumatic stress that I was unable to become involved. I tried to be an activist. I kept being re-triggered. I finally had to, I had to just turn my back on it and say, no, I'm just going to get on with my life. It was so bad that when Chernobyl happened, I ignored Chernobyl. And it wasn't until the Fukushima nuclear disaster from the tsunami, with the triple meltdown, um, 11 years, excuse me, uh, it was in 2011. That was when I kind of snapped back into focus. And three months later, I was producing Nuclear Hot Seat and doing everything else that I've been doing since then on the nuclear front. But I was uninvolved for all those years until I became involved. So anybody can become involved. Right. I, and that's a really interesting point, too, because a lot of people assume that those that become, in, you know, really into activism think that they, they must have always been an activist. And often that's not the case. Often it's just regular people who something just finally speaks to them, and they say, I've got to do something, and so they become involved. Um, you know, you again, know, I'm hearing things. You know, there was a – go ahead. There, because the, today is the anniversary, we haven't quite said the exact words, but today is the anniversary of the dropping of the bomb, the 75th anniversary, right. dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, and Sunday will be the 75th anniversary for Nagasaki. Because of that, there mm -hmm. has been a special international live streaming set of programming, 10 hours each day. Uh, it's over for today, but it is available on Sunday, and it's completely unique programming on Sunday, and it is at... Hiroshima Nagasaki 75.org. 
And you can also find them through the hashtag still here. But what's important is that they're talking with all kinds of different people who've done all kinds of work. And I heard a woman from Evanston who got the, this is just a little town outside of Chicago, uh, got Evanston to endorse the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This was the work of one woman senior citizen, she said, I can't go marching around because I'm old and I've got a hearing disability, so I can't do things on the Mm -hmm. phone, but I can send emails. I can communicate. And she, Mm -hmm. by her efforts alone, was able to get Evanston to sign on. It's not that hard. We need people. We need mass demonstrations of people because anything nuclear is poisoning our environment invisibly and we have no way to store the waste we've got no way to get out of this and that's where we have Mm -hmm. to put our energies stop making the waste stop making the weapons and put our energies into figuring out how to clean up the mess we've already made exactly and and unfortunately when it comes to the military especially the public has been sold the bill of goods regarding our military nuclear arsenal It's, it's really been heavily propagandized and then there's the propaganda how we can come up with some sort of safe nuclear energy, which, again, hmm. unless you've solved the whole fusion problem, I don't know how you can do that. But, you know, how do we fight no, there, this there, kind there, there of is no, the there is propaganda? No solution for the cold, there, there, there I know, is no solution I know. for cold fusion. All of that is propaganda. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I know. I, I was joking. But the point is that how do we deal with the propaganda end of things? You know, how do, you know, Jesus outreach. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, when you talk to people, they they just got this in their heads that if we give up our nuclear weapons, somehow we're going to be helpless, so on and so forth. How do we deal with that propaganda? First of all, you need to educate yourself into what the truth is. Um, that's the mm-hmm. reason I do Nuclear Hot Seat every week. It's at NuclearHotSeat.com, and it's also on all the different podcast platforms. Mm-hmm. And it's nuclear news from a different perspective. And I actually, the episode that is up this week is specifically about the bomb. And um, mm-hmm. I have both a speech that was given um, when, for the Nobel Peace Prize acceptance by Setsuko Thurlow, who is a Hibakusha, survivor of the nuclear bomb in Hiroshima, mm-hmm. and also an interview on, uh, with somebody who's been a peace and anti-nuclear activist for five decades, an attorney named Alice Slater. And she goes into the history of the bomb and specifically the missed opportunities where we could have done something, and it was the United States, and it's unwillingness to give up the bomb or even considering stepping back from it that has Mm -hmm. gotten us into the mess that we are currently in and right now there is huge budgetary money and propaganda going towards expansion of the Mm -hmm. nuclear bombs that we have and and we've already got over 1400 of them we don't need that many we can destroy the earth many times over with just what we just what we've got um but we need to roll roll this back. Right now, all the treaties are on the verge of being gone. We have one treaty left, and, and we, we've already heard from our current president that uh, he's not going to be renewing it. So there are that's going to put us back in an arms race with Russia. They don't want the arms race, and I would bet that if the people of the United States knew the truth, they wouldn't either because that's where all of our infrastructure is going. That's where our health care is going. That's where our education is going. That's where everything that is good about this country is being poured into the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about. Right. And, you know, when I look at this, to me it looks like they're corporate attorneys for these manufacturers, you know, in the military-industrial complex. To me it seems like the corporate attorneys are waging a war of attrition, that they're, you know, it's engineered to exhaust any opposition because they can basically Mm -hmm. wait us out, keep delaying and keep delaying. So I don't know, maybe we need to out some of these corporate attorneys, but uh, you know, once again, it, it isn't just the bombs. It, you know, again, it's the the spent fuel rods, and you know, we have this instance where, uh, you know, we we're being poisoned everywhere we go. You know, I see mm-hmm. it in my hometown of St. Louis right now because they have gone through. We have basically with the buried nuclear waste, and and it's it's in an basically an unprotected landfill. And it's sitting mm-hmm. next to another landfill 
that has an underground methane fire raging, raging like maybe now about 500 feet from the buried nuclear waste. That I am not kidding. And we can't get anything done, it seems. How do we get past and this I have, log I have been I know the women. I have been to St. Louis. I was to a conference there, mm-hmm. and I have covered this extensively on nuclear hot seat. Mm-hmm. But that's the problem we have everywhere. There is no way to safely dispose of the nuclear waste, right. which is radioactive. Every nuclear reactor creates in its waste stream and its spent fuel runs. They're not spent at all. They all contain plutonium that is very close right. to being weapons grade. It just takes a little processing. And that's right. why giving our nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia is a really bad idea because as the saying right. goes, every nuclear reactor has a bomb in the basement. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's the plutonium. That's how India got its nuclear bomb. That's how Pakistan got its nuclear bomb. We can't go playing loose and fast with this technology. And it will take the people's awareness. So you ask what they can do? Awareness. Listen to nuclear hot seat. I make it as palatable as I possibly can. And it's all accurate. It's all footnoted. Beyond that, there are are books. There are are people follow the writing of Dr. Helen Caldicott. She's like the mother of us all. Um, mm-hmm. There are resources out there. There are national organizations here in the United States. There's Beyond Nuclear. There's Nuclear Energy mm-hmm. Information Service. Um, and, there, and also there are local groups because I don't care where you are. You have a local nuclear issue. Look right. around. Google it or contact one of the national organizations. They'll fill you in and they will put you in contact with the right people in your area. I hear you. So I guess what I'm looking is obviously we need to find a way to not only deconstruct nuclear power plants and weapons and so on and so forth. Do you have any ideas for deconstruction and storage? You know, how do we deal with this in the safest possible way if there is such a thing? There is no safe way. Um Right now, the United States is doing the least possible. I live relative. I'm in Los Angeles. I live relatively close to the San Onofre nuclear right. <laughs> nuclear dirty bombs yeah. on the beach, where radioactive right. waste, highly radioactive waste, is being buried in the thinnest and cheapest of of canisters. Our storage canisters that are mm. five eighths of an inch. You know, get your ruler. Oh That's all it is of stainless steel. Oh my God! On the ocean, in a tsunami zone, in an earthquake zone, oh, no. right there, right. right there on the beach. And permission was just granted because everything is fixed. Everything is rigged. Um, permission mm-hmm. was just granted, not only for the entire site to be uh, to, to be um, uh, de- not only decommissioned, but pulled. You know, the pieces shipped away. But um, there's uh, there is also the problem that they're going to be dismantling the spent fuel pools. Now that's where they put hot fuel straight out of a reactor to cool it Mm -hmm. down for like three to five years till it can be put in storage. Mm -hmm. The problem Mm -hmm. being that if anything goes wrong with these canisters, these canisters are 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 so cheap they cannot be reopened, they cannot be Mm -hmm. offloaded, uh, they have no monitoring equipment. In Germany, they've got cast that between the steel and the concrete, they're 20 inches thick. They're inside concrete buildings. They are monitored constantly, and they can all be changed. They're taking away our last fail-safe, not only painting us into a corner, but making certain there's absolutely no way to get out without a spent fuel pool on site if there should be a disaster, if there should be a leak. We've got nowhere to go except into the Pacific Ocean. Oh, my God. You know, I saw that you have your... Was it Numbnuts of the Week Award? Can, uh, yes, a little humor could be infused right now. Could you share with us some of the Numbnuts that you have featured? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I, I, I do. <laughs> Uh, there's there's a man who is trying to uh, change the reputation of uh, Fukushima because he is genetically modifying the peaches that grow there to be the sweetest peaches on the face of the earth, and that is going to uh, make uh, make Fukushima. Uh, you know, Fukushima produce, saying nothing about the radiation or the radioactivity that oh might my be Lord. because people that people who live there still 
uh, have to yeah. measure their food at all times. Right. Um, right. Some of the, some of the other things. Um, oh, this is one that really floored me. The head of the uh, National Nuclear Safety Administration was at uh-huh. Los Alamos National Laboratories, which was where uh, where the bombs were developed. And right. uh, this woman, Lisa Gordon Haggerty, actually said, "I hope I can impart how it, meaning the Trinity test and the and the development of the bomb, contributed to the betterment of humanity." Oh, and it's like I'm still I'm still waiting for the footnote on that. It's like, oh. well, how did it? <laughs> now, and this uh, you is know, somebody who's the head. This this is their thinking. It's kind of oh, we just do wonderful oh. things. So anytime I find anything stupid like that, um, or egregious, and then some of the things are evil right. nuts where they so cross a line that it's it's horrific to think about what the consequences are. It's just, it's, it's the institutional programmed, intentional propagandized blind spot. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. And, well, and, and it's a tough I, subject. It's, oh no, go ahead. I was waiting for you. Uh, I was just going to say it's a tough subject, but that's why I do what I can on nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot right. um, and, and people to be able to understand it because I don't have a hugely technical or scientific brain, but I figure sure. if I can figure this out, I can use all the rest of my writing right. skills from theater and advertising and all the rest to communicate to people in a way they can wrap their head around and understand. And I always try and give people positive things that they can do for their health, to protect themselves, for their physical well-being, and also one of the best things to do if this is a depressing area for you and who isn't a depressing area for um, is to get involved and fight back. The cure to depression Mm -hmm. is fighting back. And as I gave you, you know, ICANW.org, don't bake on the bomb.com back from the brink.org. And just for giggles, go to nuke map. You can Google nuke map. It's got a longer URL than that, but just Google nuke Mm -hmm. map and the site will come up and Pick a location. Pick your pick your neighborhood. Uh, pick your mm-hmm. bomb. Uh, make sure you click click on casualties and um, and radiation radius. And then you click detonate and you watch the numbers go up. And it is pretty horrifying, but it's very graphic as mm. to the danger that we are all in. Well, is there? Could you really quickly tell people where they can access your program or any other uh, websites you want to list? NuclearHotSeat.com is mm-hmm. my website. The episode is posted mm-hmm. there. Any place you get podcasts, if you put in Nuclear Hot Seat, you will find it. Mm-hmm. Also on my website, I've got a little opt-in box, a yellow opt-in box. Put in your name and your email address. You'll get it every week. As soon as it posts, you'll get an email with the link. And also I've got archives there. I've got 475 episodes, strangely enough, that are already archived there for the 475th anniversary. Uh, beyond that, mm-hmm. there are two groups I would suggest, beyondnuclear.org mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. also uh, NIRS, stands for Nuclear Information Resource Service, but NIRS.org. Those are the national organizations. And there are local and regional organizations around the country. Plus, there's a tremendous network of people who are working with the indigenous populations, the Navajo people, mm-hmm. the Marshall Islanders, the uh, mm-hmm. Japanese, the, the Hibaksha. And we are all in one international community of, of people who care. And I will say you will never meet better, brighter, more dedicated, kinder or more aware people who will welcome you in than the people who are working on these issues. Wow. Thank you so much for appearing. You are a national treasure. Everybody check out Nuclear Hot Seat. And I would just add as we end this section that I can think of one other numbnuts to add to your list, but it's not just for nuclear, and that's Donald J. Trump. And I'll end on that note with you. I try and stay out of politics. I just stay with nuclear. But but let's leave it there. All right. Thank you so much, Libby. Have a great evening.
thank you so much for this opportunity. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. So, okay. So now we're going to continue our show. This is part two, and I'm going to be speaking to not only the after effects of dropping the bomb, but the idea that we still use nuclear materials in conventional weaponry. And we're just going to go over this kind of in a very global way because we don't have a lot of time to go over it in greater detail. We will at another time. We're specifically, I'm going to talk about the dangers of depleted uranium in conventional weapons. Now, as I said with Libby, corporate attorneys for these manufacturers, whether they're building, uh, whether they're uh, fossil fuel companies that also deal with nuclear energy or whether they're weapons manufacturers or the banks that invest in them, Corporate attorneys, these armies of corporate attorneys, are waging a war of attrition, and it's specifically engineered to exhaust the opposition, knowing so well that their well-heeled clients can afford these tactics. And this type of stalling on any sort of meaningful legal um, accountability, it doesn't require much skill on the part of their lawyers, and it's really not a valid argument. You just need very deep pockets. And this is what corporate does. This is what Trump does. It's a war of attrition. And with Trump, whether it's nuclear weapons or anything else, it's using chaos as his club. But I found this article. It's from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. And it was the reporting was done by Elena Bruas, Joe Snell, and then with additional reporting from Madharita Goswami. And the editors noted this article was also produced in partnership with Northwestern University's Medea School of Journalism, Media, and Integrated Marketing Communications, and a sidebar by Ann Snobbies. So they're talking about a research trip to uh, the city of Basra in, in Iraq in 1996. And their environmental engineer, Su I hope I'm saying this right, Suad Al-Azawi, found the mother taking care of her three children. Now, all of these children, she just thought, were sick, so sick they could they really couldn't move on their own even. And the mother really had no no idea how her children were ill. She just hoped El Azawi had come to help her family. And there really wasn't much El Azawi could do. But El Azawi was the director of a doctoral program in environmental engineering at the University of Baghdad and had been researching radioactive contamination in Basra, Iraq, for many years. And she went on to publish some studies that documented that cases of leukemia in children, in Basra specifically, increased 60% between 1990 and 1997. And also the number of children that during that time period that were born with severe to profound birth defects, quote, increased by a factor of three, end quote. Now, Here's the thing. Studies are going to be hard to really definitively say this is the cause because, once again, in devastated countries like Iraq, in devastated cities like Basra, where people are migrating all over the place, the economy is a chaos, it's hard to keep track of that same group because they're moving around. And the manufacturers of these weapons of death know this, and they bank on it. So. The research did point to depleted uranium as the cause. Uh, and depleted uranium is used in our weapons. The EU doesn't really use it, but the United Kingdom does, and we do. And depleted uranium, according to foreignpolicy.com in 2017, they featured Alizawi's research, and they pointed to the fact that depleted uranium was the culprit. It's a byproduct of natural uranium uh, after, yes, it's, after it's been enriched. And this is a process that's been used for many years to, to create fuel rods for nuclear plants, nuclear power plants. And, they, and because depleted uranium is incredibly dense, both the United States and the United Kingdom used it for tank armor and ammunition during uh, various combat maneuvers since the early 1990s during the first Gulf War. Now, DU, or depleted uranium, so for us it's going to say DU, and that's depleted uranium. While it isn't as radioactive as natural uranium, the metal does pose a threat. Basra, where all this is taking place, is located on the, south, the very southern tip of Iraq, and it's wedged between Iran, Kuwait, and the Persian Gulf. And 
Iraqi forces used the road named Highway 80 to stage 1990 invasion of Kuwait. And when they retreated, they were pinned down by 10 hours of U.S. aerial bombardment. And, but it left all these cars and tanks and, and, and discarded ammunition on the road. And then what you thought, what Al-Zawi found, to quote her, she said, quote, the kids were playing on the tanks and they were collecting the bullets. For some of the people, those bullets stayed in their houses for years. It was a disaster. Well, of course it was. Again, can you imagine having a souvenir in your home that has depleted uranium on it? None of us would want that, but these people here in Iraq were never told the truth about DU at all. So when she first, when Olazawi first learned about the effects of DU in the early 1990s, she learned about it from environmental activists, first of all. So she since then has really devoted her life's work to researching the impact of DU on these civilian populations. She's produced more than 50 research papers on that and chemicals that were used during these wars in her region. She conducted three exploration programs collecting data from across the areas in Iraq that were exposed to weapons of war. And unfortunately, the data, Elizawi said, not enough. Um, she, there's been a, she cited the fact that there's been a lack of research and education in these post-conflict communities, both in Syria and Iraq, and cleanup efforts um, by those communities and UN member states have failed. Um, so you have to realize that this is something that has really plagued them. Uh, this isn't just a case where our military bombed and they attacked other militaries. They were bombing civilian areas. And a lot of these places, just like in Japan, it was elderly women and children, by and large, that were hurt. Um, depleted uranium and war, okay? According to this paper, the U.S. first started using DU in 1991 during the first Gulf War. And then they used it again in the Bosnian War, and then in 2003 with the invasion of Iraq. And the U.S. Defense Department, you know, claimed that they would stop using DU in conflicts beginning in 2015. But count for the fact that there were thousands of rounds of DU ammunition that had been fired in Syrian airstrikes later that same year. And that was based on Pentagon sources, what they had said. And so Doug Weir, who's a research and policy director at the Conflict and Environment Observatory, was quoted saying, quote, it comes down to military utility. Isn't that nice? The contamination, the birth defects, the rice, cancer, cancer clusters, and children especially, it's all military utility. And I'm not going off on Mr. Weir. He's trying to do the right thing, but our military. Mr. Weir also said, quote, militaries believe they have to use this weapon because it's the best possible weapon for defeating enemy armor, and any other considerations are secondary today to the military imperative to use it, end quote. And that's what it is. Um, now, we have here a program manager at the Middle Eastern Immigrant and Refugee Alliance, Ahmed Al-Ani, which is based in Chicago, and they help refugees from the Middle East agreed. And um, Al-Ani was quoted saying, quote, war tactics are developed without any consideration for the environment, end quote. Now, we have the, according to this paper, we also have the United Nations entering in. They had an environmental program, environmental program report, at, otherwise known as UNEP, and the report said that the total amount of DU that was fired in 1991 during the Gulf War was about 300 metric tons, okay? Um, the United States is responsible for most of it. The UK accounted for less than 100 rounds. Now, authorities have not released any information or on the details. They haven't released any information about where DU was used during the Gulf War, according to the United Nations report. In 03, a team of experts uh, recruited by the IAEA, or the International Atomic Energy Agency, um, they investigated about a dozen sites in Kuwait, and they reported back. They found DU ammunition fragments that were in several locations. But again, there's been no comprehensive investigation of these potential sites in Iraq. Um, our government, the U.S., has been opaque as well. 
uh, about where and how how much DU was used during the 03 Iraq investigation. But again, according to the UN report, um, from various speculative studies, and we're going to say they're speculative, but they estimate that the U.S.-led coalition dispersed anywhere, quote, from 170 to 1,700 metric tons of the toxic material, end quote. So, and according to where Iraq contamination from DU was approximately 50 times worse than what was let loose in the Balkans. Uh, public health risks really fast. In 2001, World Health Organization, they completed a review, a scientific review, and they concluded that DU depleted uranium is, quote, both chemically and radiologically toxic. In 2001, the World Health Organization completed a scientific review that concluded that depleted uranium is both chemically and radiologically toxic. I don't know how anybody can think this stuff is safe, much less in civilian populations where there are young children especially. Nobody would want their child near it. The World Health Organization also noted that long-term studies of workers that were exposed to DU showed the following impairments, impairments of kidney function. Um, it was also found that insoluble inhaled uranium particles, this was between one and 10 micrometers in size, very small, could settle in the lungs. And with a high enough dose over enough time could lead to lung cancer. Now, our military personnel were exposed, but they were also in armored vehicles, and so some of them may not have gotten as sick, but any military personnel that left the tank would have had increased chances of exposure. But the World Health Organization also said the greater exposure, rather the greatest exposure, was really the danger to young children. And this has to speak to our, our values as a country. Why is it that we cannot see that children of color are just as important as our children? That children that come from different religious beliefs are just as important as our children? I, I do not understand that. So the World Health Organization emphasized the issue this morning. Young children, whether playing in a conflict zone, because, again, their playgrounds have been destroyed, they're playing where they can they have a much greater chance of contracting any problems because the soil itself has been contaminated. And so they have a greater chance of exposure, and you have to tell the babies they shouldn't touch the substance. Now, as anybody who knows little children, can, can you ever successfully stop a little child from playing in the dirt if they, if they want to dig in the dirt, much less put their fingers in their mouth? It's part of childhood. But this is what's happening. now. It's unclear whether these, these communities in Iraq, for instance, and in Syria, have really been informed of the full dangers of DU. And Weir was quoted as saying, quote, to my knowledge, there's not the level of risk awareness that you have about explosive remnants of war where you have organizations going out into schools and teaching students not to touch mines or munitions or whatever else. You don't really get that with depleted uranium, end quote. Except that this is this is a substance that it, it, the effects, the dangerous effects will linger for their whole life and can destroy their lives. Um, and again, most of the communities in Iraq and also in Syria, they weren't given any information about DU or the armaments that used depleted uranium. And, and Al Zawi basically said this, and part of it she said was because the government was just overwhelmed. Um, and so to quote this article, Alizawi admitted, quote, most of her publications regarding the impact of DU could not be published during the 1990s or early 2000s because the Iraqi agriculture minister claimed her results were terrifying people and would render farmers unable to market their products, end quote. Okay, so we've got this big mess. And were those Iraqi, uh, agricult was the Iraqi agriculture minister wrong? Of course he was, he or she. But we have a mess there, and we broke it. Uh, in 2013, the World Health Organization and the Iraqi Health Ministry, they also released a study in 2013, and they looked at the prevalence, the increased prevalence of congenital birth defects in certain areas of Iraq, 
in areas specifically where these, these EU, these toxic munitions, have been used. Now, the study supposedly found no clear evidence of, a, of an unusual high rate of birth defects, but World Health Organization was explicit and they let it be known that the study did not even attempt to examine the link between the presence of depleted uranium and the rise in congenital birth defects. And so that first study really undermined earlier studies that had linked these higher rates of birth defects to these toxic munitions. And once again, you have in 2020, uh, there was a study published in Environmental Pollution, and that study claimed that Iraqi children that lived close to Talil Air, Air Base in Iraq had a higher risk of congenital diseases. And they based this on they took samples from hair and deciduous teeth from the children that lived closest to the U.S. military air base. And the hair and the deciduous teeth samples from these children, get this, contained 28 times more thorium. Now, thorium is one of the byproducts of depleted uranium decay. And it was that much more than from children who lived further away. And so an environmental toxicologist and lead author of the story, Muzgan Savabiasavani, God forgive me for mispronouncing the name, was quoted as saying, quote, our suspicion is that the children were exposed to depleted uranium. The families of these children recall seeing smoke coming out of the military base, and many of them smelled it for months, end quote. What they didn't tell you is this. At Talil Air, Air Base, U.S. Air Base, military trash frequently burned. Burned. And it's burned in an area where the, the article said, quote, surrounded by multiple graveyards of abandoned tanks, end quote, which is a potential source of EU. So the U.S. military is releasing potential toxins as airborne particulates when they burn their military trash near an area where there are abandoned tanks with discarded, depleted uranium shells. This is not rock. I mean, this, you, you can look at this. It's, it's, it's damning. And the findings on the on human health from the, the findings of the impact on, of DU on human health throughout their lifetime is disturbing. Um, it can affect or retard the development of the embryo or the fetus. Um, and it is a greater threat to young children because, again, children are more vulnerable. Their bodies absorb materials much quicker than, others, than other people, than adults. Um, and, again, the study, they, they want to say it doesn't definitively prove the DU is causing these congenital diseases in Iraq. Um, but this article goes on to say, quote, it only shows that exposure to the metal and higher rates of congenital diseases are happening in tandem, end quote. Well, think about that statement. That just points to, the, to possible causality. When the rates of, of congenital diseases are compared to normal incidence levels, and there's that big a discrepancy, even if there are other factors at play, these results should not be ignored or dismissed. It's pointing to causality. It may not, it may not hold up to a tricky corporate attorney who wants a definitive point A to point B, but, yeah, when you have an increased incidence in these diseases, far beyond what you would normally see, nor normally see normal incidence levels, and you've got this outlier, which is DU, it's, yeah, it goes through scientific causality. Uh, and there are other factors. Again, people are moving around. And again, that's, you know, there's a quote, um, you know, with the general collapse of the healthcare system, malnutrition, everything else that goes with it, an epidemiology, epidemiological study to track cancer, for example, or in a population in Iraq would be next to impossible to undertake, according to Weir. And Weir goes on to say, could you track 5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 people in Iraq over a period of 10, 15, or 20 years with that much internal migration and disruption to the healthcare systems, end quote. Well, of course not. But think about it for a minute. Doesn't that migration that's caused by all the chaos help the U.S. military escape accountability for their actions? Especially given the fact that the entire Iraq war was based on a pile of lies. 
There was no truth to any of George W. Bush's claims. There were no weapons of mass destruction, at least not until the U.S. military brought DU anyway into the place. The USA not only had no right to invade, but the administration of George W. Bush and everyone connected to it in a decision-making position has helped commit a crime against humanity. It's not unreasonable to posit the idea that the internal instability and disruption to Iraqi society helps the U.S. military evade responsibility as such studies would be impossible to conduct. And this fits into a pattern, like I said before, of attrition by the nuclear industry, the weapons manufacturers, the bankers that fund them, as well as our military, whether it be via Iraq or here in St. Louis, with the after effects of Wesley, it allows them to evade responsibility. And the lawyers, through their plan of attrition, can keep stalling and stalling and stalling. And we never find out the full truth. The studies don't get conducted. And, we, and the people of Iraq and here never get justice. We know that depleted uranium keeps lingering in the soil. All right, and it is very difficult to find and even to clean up, and that's according to Elizawi. When and she went on to say, you know, when radioactive dust is dumped into the atmosphere, that contamination goes far and wide. When it becomes airborne as particulates, there's no way of of cleaning it up, frankly. And we have here uh, a quote from Satya Tripathi, who's the UN Assistant Secretary General and head of the UNEP New York office. And Satya was quoted saying, quote, radiation exposure causes long-term damage to not only humans, but all species inhabiting the planet and their ecosystems around them, end quote. The Arab Scientific Community Organization, which is an independent non-for-profit that published Al-Azawi's paper titled Modeling Depleted Uranium Contamination in Southern Iraq, um, they, were, they published it. And the report did look at the high levels of contaminated water that washed away, you know, when we have the, we have this destroyed artillery, these, uh, these artillery shells are lying around, there's a rainstorm, the rain washes away and contaminates the water. That water is eventually going to come into contact <clears throat> with anybody growing any sort of vegetation and include in a production of food, and then you have another avenue of contamination. Look, we have a few minutes left, and I'm just going to come out and say it. We have a system that we know is irretrievably broken. And unfortunately, we allow it to continue to be broken because big money has a way of hiring massive armies of corporate attorneys that use stalling tactics, and again, that war of attrition to keep the public from finding out the truth. And if there ever is some truth that's released to the public, any damages can be appealed, and once again, we're kept from the truth. As far as I'm concerned, these corporate attorneys are abusing their licenses to practice law, and they are not acting as honest officers of any court. Uh, we have a situation here. We have allowed not only a war to be illegally conducted, such as Iraq, that was based on a pile of lies. We have definitive proof now that the administration of George W. Bush lied. And then we gave the gift, and I'm being very ironic, it keeps on giving, it keeps on giving in terms of increased cancer levels, it keeps on giving in terms of increased congenital birth defects for these babies, namely depleted uranium. Now, there are other substances that you can use to use for bunker buster bombs. One of the reasons that our people like DU is because it's cheaper to use. The fact is this. If we remain silent about this crime against humanity, then we are complicit. Babies in the Middle East are dying hideous deaths because our military chose to act like cowards and like corporate raiders, and they used something, a poison that never should have been used. We must hold people accountable, and that's what the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Mollis, is all about. It's about holding those forces accountable and making and holding them 
making them do the right thing. We cannot allow, we cannot remain silent. We cannot be complicit. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to end this show with a phrase that's been used a lot and it comes from Holocaust survivors and I am the descendant of a Holocaust survivor and I will say never again. But I'm going to say, I'm going to add to that, never again is now. How we are judged by the Almighty, by whatever name you call the Almighty, depends on our actions. Never again is now. And I hope that you tune in next week to the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Moloff, Good night and God bless.